This episode contains spoilers for the 2019 film Jojo Rabbit. It also includes discussions of the Holocaust, violence, and other topics which might be disturbing for some listeners. I'm Megan, and I'm studying history and film at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, and you're listening to Lens on History. In this episode, we're discussing Taika Waititi's 2019 film, Jojo Rabbit, first examining its historical context, and then delving into its deeper implications. Thanks for joining me as we look through this lens on history. Jojo Rabbit tells the story of 10-year-old German Jojo Betzler, played by newcomer Roman Griffin Davis. Jojo spends his time learning knife skills at Hitler youth camps and conversing with his imaginary friend, Adolf Hitler, played by Taika Waititi himself. One day, Jojo was shocked and terrified to find a Jewish girl named Elsa, played by Thomasin McKenzie, whom his mother has hid in their attic. As he and Elsa begin to develop a friendship, Jojo slowly becomes awakened to the atrocity of his Nazi fanaticism. Jojo Rabbit is certainly one of, if not the most controversial film of the past year. Some people think it's an absolutely brilliant depiction of the risks of fanaticism and the power of love. Others think it dangerously makes light of Hitler and fascism by cracking insensitive jokes and suggesting that Nazis are just misunderstood. Is Jojo Rabbit genius, or is it morally and historically irresponsible? Let's take a look. Hey, Jojo, my old friend. Hi, Adolf. What's wrong, little man? They call me a scared rabbit. Jojo let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. Before I start addressing the more controversial aspects of Jojo Rabbit, I want to take a look at how accurately the film portrays history. I think the movie's misleading in the sense that, in many ways, it's very fanciful and comedic, and a lot of the characters say things that probably no one would have really said at the time. However, in terms of the actual historical context of the film and the ways in which it depicts things like the Hitler Youth and the Gestapo and resistance movements, it's surprisingly spot on. Hi, Hitler, guys. Hi, Today, you boys will be involved in such activities as marching, bayonet drills, grenade throwing, trench digging, map reading, gas defense, camouflage, ambush techniques, war games, firing guns, and blowing stuff up. The girls will practice important womanly duties, such as dressing wounds, making beds, and learning how to get pregnant. In Jojo Rabbit, the Hitler youth seem quite laughable, honestly, almost like a violent summer camp. The leaders, played by Sam Rockwell and Rebel Wilson, whom the children look up to, are fairly buffoonish, making fools of themselves in just about everything they do. Yet the group is also clearly extremely brutal and fanatical, teaching those same young boys how to handle weapons and to be ready to turn their parents into the secret police, all rooted in this devotion to Hitler. The truth is this depiction of the Hitler youth is not much of an exaggeration at all. The vast majority of young Germans were members of the Hitler Youth and the League of German Girls, which was the female equivalent, both in the years leading up to World War II and during the war itself. Eventually, more than 82% of these young populations joined. In 1936, the law concerning the Hitler Youth made participation in these groups mandatory. But the details of such participation 
look different for boys and girls. And Jojo Rabbit's depiction of these different and sexist activities, while definitely played for laughs, is pretty accurate. The boys in the real Hitler Youth practiced camping skills, hiking, boxing, fighting, and weapons handling, and they also did necessary tasks around the cities like painting, putting up signs, and collecting scrap metal, which Jojo does in the film. The girls, for the most part, did indeed train to be wives and mothers. And of course, underlying all of this were these constant reminders that one must be devoted to the Fuhrer and to the fatherland. Werner Burkhardt, a former member of the Hitler Youth, recalled his experiences. He said, We all had to wear a uniform, and every Wednesday we got the life of the Fuhrer told to us and had to repeat it word by word, not omitting anything, not adding anything, just as it was. Every Saturday, we had to go to the suburbs and play war games, sort of child play like hide-and-seek, but there was always this background of war behind it. This comment emphasizes the kind of stuff that Jojo Rabbit shows, that the Hitler youth co-opted the innocence and eagerness of these German children to serve fascist military purposes. And, while many wholeheartedly and enthusiastically participated, there were definitely some who were more like Jojo, wanting to be part of something, but feeling overwhelmed by the degree to which they were supposed to devote themselves, which often eventually looked like being sent off to fight for Germany in the war. We see this in the film. Jojo freaks out when he's asked to kill a rabbit, but he also embraces Nazism and really enjoys most of his experiences as a member of the Hitler Youth. And so what he finds himself gravitating towards is the more ideological aspects of the Hitler Youth. He worships Hitler, I mean, he envisions Adolf as his imaginary friend, and he also willingly adopts and internalizes the deeply anti-Semitic rhetoric that he's been fed, rhetoric that would have included eugenics and theories on the purity of race based on things like skull shape. Jojo also spends a lot of the movie on the verge of reporting his own mother's anti-Nazi actions to his superiors. While this wasn't something that every member of the Hitler Youth or the League of German Girls was drawn into, the organizations did encourage their members to report suspicious things like resistance that they noticed among their peers and even their family members. But how is it possible that so many kids felt okay about doing this? What happened, and what Jojo Rabbit shows, is that they were indoctrinated to the point of blind fanaticism. Many didn't just do their duty, they were deeply enthusiastic about it. I belong to Hitler, body and soul. That's Alphonse Heck, who was once an enthusiastic member of the Hitler Youth, talking about his experiences. He writes, None of us who reached high rank in the Hitler Youth will ever totally shake the legacy of the Fuhrer. Despite our monstrous sacrifice and the appalling misuse of our idealism, there will always be the memory of unsurpassed power, the intoxication of fanfares and flags proclaiming our new age. Hans Massaqua, whose mother was German and father was Liberian, held similar beliefs to Heck, despite the fact that the Nazi party would never have welcomed him because of his race. He says, I had become so identified with the Germans and the Nazi cause. And he adds, All of my friends had these black shorts and brown shirts and a swastika and a little dagger which said blood and honor. I wanted it just like everybody else. I wanted to belong. These were my schoolmates. It's the old quest for adventure. Hitler made it very attractive. You're not a Nazi, Jojo. You're a 10-year-old kid. 
who likes dressing up in a funny uniform and wants to be part of a club. In addition to just focusing on Jojo, the movie also follows his mother, Rosie Betzler, who's played by Scarlett Johansson, Oscar nominated for the role, and that's a whole other separate controversy we're not going to get into. Rosie's view of Nazism is essentially the opposite of Jojo's. She's the one who's decided to hide Elsa. And she also resists in other ways, namely by distributing anti-Nazi pamphlets across town. And these actions ultimately result in her death by hanging. In one of the film's most devastating moments, Jojo is out and about running to Marin's, and he suddenly looks up to see her body hanging from a noose in the town square. It's shocking for Jojo, and it's shocking for the viewer, too. The camera focuses on Jojo as he stoops down to look at a butterfly, and when he stands up, Rosie's legs, with her distinctive red and white heels, are suddenly hanging into the frame. Clearly, Rosie is the film's way of acknowledging the non-Jews, sometimes termed as righteous Gentiles, who did not participate in the Nazi regime or simply stand by as such horrors were enacted, but actually worked to rescue Jews and fight against fascism. And of course, these weren't the only people who resisted. Many Jews and members of other persecuted groups were also actively involved in these resistance movements. But what were these movements really like in Germany? You know, we've heard of various murders of Nazi officers and things like the 20 July plot to assassinate Hitler. But is what Rosie does in Jojo Rabbit indicative of what these more ordinary and everyday forms of resistance were like? And did these resistors risk meeting a fate similar to Rosie if they were caught? Gestapo records show that about 800,000 Germans, a little more than 1% of the population, were jailed for resistance efforts over the period of 12 years surrounding the war, meaning more than that number were participating in resistance. It's important, though, to realize that ratio, that those who actively resisted were an exceedingly small percentage of the overall German population. Those that did resist did so in a variety of ways. Some resisted in subtle ways, by writing, bearing witness to, and creating records of Nazi atrocities. Some people fought back by refusing to comply with Nazi orders. Some, like Rosie, hid Jews in their homes, which was extremely dangerous and costly. We'll go into more detail on that later. There were also several organized resistance groups in Germany, many of which were formed by college students and other young people. One notable one was the White Rose Resistance Group, founded by siblings Hans and Sophie Scholl in Munich in 1942. The White Rose's most common activity was to distribute anti-Nazi pamphlets around the city. And this is something that we know Rosie does in the film. She's never identified to be working with a specific group like the White Rose, but we see that the people who executed her pinned one of her pamphlets to her clothes, and it reads, Befreit Deutschland bekämpft die Partei, which translates to Free Germany, Fight the Party. The consequences for resistance in all its forms were severe, especially for the activities that Rosie participated in. Those who hid Jews or distributed anti-Nazi materials, if caught, were sometimes deported to concentration camps. Many, though, were imprisoned, brought before the People's Court, which Hitler had established for show trials, and then executed. This was the fate of Hans and Sophie Scholl and their friends who worked with them. These executions, mostly by guillotine or hanging, normally took place privately in prisons or camps, rather than public squares. The Scholls, for example, were killed in the famous Stottelheim prison. And in the later years of the war, this became a more common occurrence just to keep up civilian morale. 
There were some executions, though, like Rosie's, that happened in public. Sources suggest that these ones often served as warnings against resistance for local populations by showing them that the Nazis were willing to execute anyone. And so some of the people that were publicly executed were female teenage resistors. The Nazis wanted to show that even those who were considered to be some of the most protected or unharmable, so to speak, members of society, you know, young women, wouldn't be protected if they chose to resist the fascist regime. So I think it's easy to view a character like Rosie Betzler as the token good German, and there's a discussion to be had about that perspective, or to view her death as just a way of escalating tension or raising the stakes or forcing Jojo to see the error of his ways. But there's actually a lot of historical truth associated with her character. Sure, her death did make the film more dramatic, but that's also what being involved in the resistance was like. People who did that were undoubtedly risking their lives, and that's what Jojo Rabbit shows. As we touched on a few minutes ago, one of the main ways that Rosie resists Nazism is by hiding a Jewish girl named Elsa in a secret room in the family's house. And Jojo, of course, as a budding Nazi, is both terrified of and disgusted by Elsa. You're not a ghost, Johannes. I'm something worse, but I think you already know that, don't you? You know what I am? No? Yes. Say it. Say it! A Jew. Isn't I? Jojo Rabbit is just one of the many movies and books that focuses on Jews in hiding. It's a pretty common trope when the period is fictionalized. And it makes sense. It's a way to acknowledge the Jewish victims of the Nazi regime without centering the story in a concentration camp. Plus, many people's primary understanding of the Holocaust has come through the diary of Anne Frank, which Anne wrote while in hiding. But we also have to remember that the vast majority of Jews in Europe did not go into hiding. It was extremely difficult and dangerous, both for those who were hiding and for those who were housing them. And it was complicated. If you didn't have connections to a non-Jew who was willing to hide Jews, you were out of luck. Many people were refused by their neighbors, friends, and even family members. And those who had originally found hiding were often forced to move on, sometimes multiple times, to different situations after the ones they were in became unsafe or unsustainable. Those who did find hiding places, much like Elsa, faced cramped and dirty conditions where, for hours and days on end, they could not move, talk, cough, or even flush the toilet. The people that were hiding them were now dividing their own family's meager rations amongst additional mouths, and sometimes this meant that the Jews in hiding went for days without food. In the scene where Jojo and Rosie are eating dinner, we see Rosie grappling with this. She tries to forgo her soup, claiming not to be hungry, but Jojo, knowing it's meant for Elsa, wants to eat it himself. The greatest danger that hidden Jews and their helpers could face was being found out by the Gestapo, the Nazi secret police. And there's a scene in the movie where this almost happens to Jojo and Elsa, and they have to pretend that Elsa is Jojo's sister. And just a quick side note here, a lot of times, in reality, Jews in hiding would be disguised as relatives of the families they were hiding with and would be issued false papers and stuff like that. The scene in Jojo Rabbit, while on the surface it has a lot of comedy, is also extremely intense. The Gestapo just show up and begin searching the Betzler house with absolutely no warning. 
Heil Hitler. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Captain Hermann Dietz of the Falkenheim Gestapo. With me, Herr Muller, Herr Juncker, Herr Klum, and Herr Forsch. May we come in? Thank you so much. Heil Hitler. 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 Could this really happen? Could the Gestapo just enter any house and investigate like this? Were the real Gestapo at all similar to how they're portrayed in Jojo Rabbit? The Gestapo were responsible for so much of the terror of the Nazi regime. They arrested, tortured, and murdered people. And many of them were members of the Einsatzgruppen, the mobile killing units that shot hundreds of Jews at a time. And the Gestapo were indeed a secret police. They cultivated this mysterious presence, especially at the local level. German historian Friedrich Zipfel noted, One can evade a danger that one recognizes, but a police working in the dark becomes uncanny. And this continued after the war. They maintained this secrecy by destroying a lot of their records. So there's not a great deal of information on what the Gestapo was doing on the everyday level in which Jojo would have interacted with them. But we know enough about them to know that the Gestapo as portrayed in Jojo Rabbit seem much less harmful than the real Gestapo. Yes, the men who visit Jojo clearly hold dangerous power. They're likely the ones responsible for Rosie's death. But at least in this scene, they seem kind of bumbling, caught up in their own silly little rules of having to haul Hitler every person who walks into the room. They're certainly creepy, but not sinister in the same way as the Gestapo that was active in Germany at the time. This surprise investigation in the movie, though, while comedic, does at least hint at the more nefarious nature of the local Gestapo. We know that their routine in Nazi Germany included intense patrolling and monitoring, a lot of which was aided by regular German civilians who reported on their neighbors. And so very few people felt safe anywhere, even at home. And some survivors have shared stories like this, of the Gestapo coming into their homes. So even though it's unclear how common an occurrence this was, we know that what the Gestapo do in Jojo Rabbit has basis in historical fact. Fortunately, the Gestapo don't discover Elsa, and she lives to see the end of the war and come out of hiding. The film ends as Jojo and Elsa go their separate ways, though, so we don't ever find out what happened to the two kids trying to navigate post-war Germany essentially on their own. But now I have nothing. No one. The last time I saw my parents was at the station. They were put on a train. I ran. It's hinted that Jojo's father will return to Germany, but that's the only peek we get into what his future might entail. In reality, it's quite likely that Allied soldiers would have requisitioned the Betzler house, especially since Jojo was the only one living there. Germany experienced a lot of upheaval and rebuilding after the war, something which the Allied armies facilitated in both helpful ways and violent and invasive ways. We see this a little at the end of the film, when Jojo just narrowly escapes being shot by Soviet soldiers. The Allies also implemented programs and protocols for denazification and re-education of the German population. Since he's a child, even though he was a member of the Hitler Youth, Jojo likely wouldn't have had to go through those, though. As for Elsa, 
the movie gives us even fewer hints about what her future holds. Many Jews, especially those who had been liberated from concentration camps, were placed in displaced person camps. The DP camps claimed to be a place for these survivors to recover and to begin the search for family members, but the conditions in the camps were fairly abysmal. They also often lacked necessary and adequate supplies. Also likely would have joined the thousands of Jews searching for the family members they had lost during the war, which would have been an exhausting and laborious process. As a teenager, though, her experience would have been very different than the Jewish children who were so young when they entered hiding that they no longer remembered their families or even knew that they were Jewish. Jojo Rabbit ends on this hopeful note, with Jojo and Elsa both looking ahead to futures free of Nazism. And I think it's a wonderful place to end the film. But the historical reality shows us that, while hopeful, their futures would have been difficult and their paths back to a normal life, particularly in Elsa's case, would have been long and arduous. For a film that would seem to care less about verisimilitude than your average historical movie, Jojo Rabbit reflects history pretty well for the most part, and it includes historical tidbits and details that are often overlooked. But it's not enough for a film to be accurate. It also matters how it portrays these historical facts, the perspectives it values, the memories it weaves. And there's certainly a lot to talk about regarding this and Jojo Rabbit. It's not a typical historical film. Where other films merely suggest it, this movie forces its viewer to grapple with questions of historical memory. I think the first thing you have to realize when talking about this is what kind of a film Jojo Rabbit is and what kind of a film it is not. It's a film told from the perspective of a German child who's a member of the Hitler Youth. It's a film about life in Germany at the end of World War II. It is meant to ridicule fascism and expose the dangerous ease of blind fanaticism. It's meant to touch on the experiences of Jewish people and resistors in Germany, but still through the eyes of a German child. It's not meant to be a documentary-like film about Germany during World War II or the Holocaust or Hitler himself. But a lot of reviewers seem to want to view it in a vacuum, as if it bears the sole responsibility of educating the world about the Holocaust and the dangers and evils of Nazism. You cannot let Jojo Rabbit be your only experience of or information about these historical events. It probably shouldn't be the first film you watch on the subject. If you watch Jojo Rabbit, you should also watch Claude Lanzmann's Shoah and Spielberg's Schindler's List, still with a critical eye, and you should read Primo Levi's Survival in Auschwitz and Elie Wiesel's Night. To expect Jojo Rabbit to be a movie that it isn't, to expect it to do what Shoah and Survival in Auschwitz do, is to lose sight of the value of the perspectives it does present. Once we've acknowledged this, I think it's fine, and in fact appropriate, to question if this lens, this satirical, child-focused lens, is a good lens. Is it okay to laugh at Nazis? Does the comedy in Jojo Rabbit, does having Hitler be Jojo's imaginary friend, accomplish anything or give us any new insights? How does looking at these issues through a child's perspective, and a Nazi child's perspective at that, give us new understanding or help us to see things a different way? I think from the get-go, I should clarify that, while I have some issues with it, as you've probably figured out, I like Jojo Rabbit. I think it's unique, effective, and insightful. And it's totally fine if you disagree or you'd answer those questions that I raised differently. They're meant to have many answers. 
Let's start with the comedy of the movie. It certainly pushes the boundaries of what we're comfortable with by bringing jokes into World War II. But making fun of Hitler isn't new. It's been happening since he rose to power. Hinkle, the dictator, ruled the nation with an iron fist. Under the new emblem of the double cross, liberty was banished, free speech was suppressed, and only the voice of Hinkle was heard. Those were clips from Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, made in 1940, Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not to Be, about the Nazi occupation of Poland, released in 1942, and the musical number Springtime for Hitler from Mel Brooks's 1967 film The Producers. So Jojo Rabbit kind of joins this cinematic and comedic legacy of poking fun at Hitler. And it's important to make a distinction between laughing at Hitler and Nazis and laughing at the Holocaust. I'd say there's a general consensus that the former is okay, but the latter is where we draw the line. And I think Jojo Rabbit is aware of this and doesn't ever verge into the latter camp. Okay, so if it's fine to laugh at Nazis, if there's a historical and cultural precedent for this, why should we laugh at Nazis? Does it accomplish anything or does it just make us feel better? What Taika Waititi has repeatedly stated in interviews, and I agree, is that humor robs Hitler and his Nazi ideology of power. A lot of the jokes in the movie focus, essentially, on how stupid the Nazi regime and its protocols and rules were, not in a way that denies the grievous effects they had, but in a way that rejects the legitimacy of their beliefs. In some ways, refusing to engage with and debate the substance of these ideologies is a way of decreeing that there's no debate to be had, there's no kernel of truth or validity to be found in these fascist beliefs. The movie walks this fine line of acknowledging that while Nazi ideology is an undoubtedly serious system which must be fought against, and we see this in the way that Jojo gets drawn in and the danger that Elsa and Rosie face, it is, at the same time, a set of beliefs that is completely unfounded and ridiculous, one that should have no shred of legitimacy. Making fun of them calls them out for what they are, both reprehensible and idiotic. And Taika Waititi made a particular effort to do this with the character of imaginary Hitler. He did no research on Hitler because he didn't want to give him that dignity. And Waititi also, in interviews, gleefully imagines Hitler learning that someone who is both Maori and Jewish is playing him, and how embarrassing that would be for the dictator. The imaginary Hitler in Jojo Rabbit might not portray the depths of Hitler's evil, but it gives him no respect or power. He's relegated to the status of imaginary friend. He has no effect, no one other than Jojo can hear or see him, and eventually, he even loses his effect on Jojo. And I think this is the perspective the film takes with a lot of its Nazi characters. They're these stereotypical buffoons. 
And part of me wishes that Jojo Rabbit had been able to have more nuance in this regard, and not reduce them to stereotypes. But I can also understand the effectiveness of this for robbing Nazism of its legitimacy. I also think this stereotyped expression of Nazism is something that Hollywood has struggled with since there's been movies about Nazis, just often in the complete opposite direction of Jojo Rabbit. Most Nazis in movies are basically your stereotypical movie villain. Even Amon Gert of Schindler's List, while terrifying, is over-the-top psychopathic. And yes, these characterizations emphasize the atrocities of Nazism, but they also let the viewer off the hook. They let the viewer completely distance himself from that evil. The fact is, while the Nazi party had its share of psychopaths, it was primarily composed of ordinary men, to borrow a phrase from Christopher Browning's book, who did evil things because they were ordered to, because they were part of a group that was doing it, because they distanced themselves from those they harmed. Reduced or stereotypical versions of Nazis in movies let us go, of course I'd never do that, without having to stop and reflect upon the ways that we, or people we know, do buy into fanaticism, or are influenced by peer pressure, or might have gone along to get along in Nazi Germany. Jojo Rabbit drops the ball in this regard, perhaps, with characters like Rebel Wilson's Fräulein Rahm or Stephen Merchant's Captain Dirtz, but I think it picks it back up again with the character of Jojo himself. It shows how a normal kid like Jojo could become captivated by Nazi mania and Hitler's messages, but it also doesn't shy away from emphasizing how abhorrent the beliefs that Jojo has absorbed are. We can't claim that Jojo is simply an innocent kid, nor can we relegate him to the status of psychopathic Nazi. We have to grapple with the fact that he's an ordinary kid who has bought into this heinous stuff. And I think the movie is conscious of its audience in the way we watch films, and it uses this to its advantage. We automatically, generally, identify with the protagonist, but in this case, the protagonist is a little Nazi boy. So maybe we more shifted our alliances to Elsa or Rosie, but still, if we're an engaged viewer, we're forced to reckon, to a certain extent, with the ways in which we and the world around us are similar to Jojo, the ways we value comfort, identity, adventure, over our fellow man. It's so easy to relegate someone not just who you disagree with, but who's acting in morally reprehensible ways, to the status of an other, thinking that only psychopaths do evil things. And while this might mean you're doing the good thing of not giving any legitimacy to their evil, it also means that you're not reckoning with the sly ways that evil can crop up in ordinary people and what we can do to prevent that. I want to go back, though, to the comedic, unconventional tone of the film because I think it accomplishes more than just ridiculing Nazis. It also gives some characters, particularly Elsa, more agency. She has some of the funniest lines in the movie, and not just that, but the film's tone lets her kind of take control and exert power over Jojo. She comes up with these sharp and amusing retorts. She takes action in her own fate. She's the one who decides she should masquerade as Jojo's sister when the Gestapo search the house. Elsa gets to be a normal, witty, tough girl, rather than just a meek, timid victim. Break free. Break free, great Aryan. There are no weak Jews. 
I am descended from those who wrestle angels and kill giants. We were chosen by God. You were chosen by pathetic little men who can't even grow a full mustache. It's also important to consider the messages furthered by the film's unique perspective, how it views everything through Jojo's eyes, through the lens of a 10-year-old child in the Hitler Youth. As we already touched on, I think this perspective, while it certainly narrows the scope of the film, is able to walk the exceedingly fine line of showing the powerful grip of Nazi ideology and also the absurdity of it. One scene in particular stands out in regards to this, and it's when Jojo finds Elsa for the first time. It's a horror movie. We see Elsa's foot first, illuminated by Jojo's flashlight, and then the camera pans up to her face. Jojo immediately stumbles away and then stares at the doorframe to the cupboard, and as the camera slowly tracks in, violins screeching like a slasher film soundtrack in the background, Elsa's bony fingers wrap around the doorframe. It's like a scene from It. When Jojo scurries to the door, she runs after him and raises her arms, grabbing him violently. It's an extremely effective scene. We know it's not actually arguing that Elsa is some demonic creature. Instead, it's showing how Jojo views her, through a lens of anti-Semitism and fear that the Nazi party has cultivated and ingrained in him. He's been taught that Jews are monsters, so when he sees Elsa, these terrible and fanatical ideas come dangerously alive in his child's imagination. But we know why she's there. We know that she's not a threat. So, while the threat seems real to Jojo, we can see how absurd it is. And that's just one scene in which we see how effective this lens, this perspective is, in dealing with the subject matter in a nuanced way. By the end of the film, Jojo has wrestled a lot with these Nazi ideas. He's been through a lot. His friendship with Elsa has shaken up his belief system. And a lot of people say that the film's ending wraps things up too neatly, but I think there's more nuance than we realize. I really appreciate that we're able to see the ways Jojo has grown and rejected Nazi ideology, but he isn't suddenly a perfect person. I mean, he tells Elsa the Germans won the war at first, which is really, really terrible. I think it would have been all too easy to have Jojo make a complete 180, but instead, he clearly still has a lot to learn. And I can understand how the very last moments of the film, where Jojo and Elsa stand in the street and dance, seem too naively happy. But I think if we know the context that we talked about earlier, what they each would have been heading into after the war, we can view that ending as more hopeful in the face of tragedy than naive. When I watched that final moment, Elsa and Jojo dancing in the streets of Germany, both having made it through the war, I found it really beautiful, not just for its hopefulness. It was because it reminded me of an incredibly moving poem by Charlotte Delbo, who survived Auschwitz. It's called, Prayer to the Living to Forgive Them for Being Alive. You, who are passing by, well-dressed in all your muscles, clothing which suits you well or badly or just about, you who are passing by, full of tumultuous life within your arteries, glued to your skeleton, 
as you walk with a sprightly step, athletic, awkward, laughing sullenly. You are all so handsome, so commonplace, so commonplacely like everyone else, so handsome in your commonplaceness, diverse, with this excess of life which keeps you from feeling your bust following your leg, your hand raised to your hat, your hand upon your heart, your kneecap rolling softly in your knee. How can we forgive you for being alive? I beg you, do something. Learn a dance step. Something to justify your existence. Something that gives you the right to be dressed in your skin, in your body hair. Learn to walk and to laugh. Because it would be too senseless, after all, for so many to have died. Will you live doing nothing with your life? Thank you for listening to this episode of Lens on History. For a list of sources consulted and further reading, watching, and listening materials, please go to lensonhistory.wordpress.com.